JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer here, another Baseball America podcast. We're talking, we're continuing to roll through. We are wrapping up. We are getting near the end here of the, uh, the, the, our, our organizational podcast, off-season podcast. And we saved one of the best for last because if you're a Padres fan right now, you're, you're probably, uh, it's probably hard to get the grin off of your face. Um, as we're recording this, the, the Padres have signed Jerks and brought back Jerks and Profar. Three-year deal looks like around $21 million, which if you're a Padres fan, it's like, oh, that's a nice little extra piece. But as we jump into this, Kyle, I'll just kind of throw it to you. How many teams out there are there that that would be the biggest thing they've done the entire offseason? So far, to date, that would be the biggest deal for all but five teams in Major League Baseball. George Springer to the Blue Jays, DJ LeMahieu coming back to the Yankees, Liam Hendricks to the White Sox, James McCann to the Mets, Michael Brantley going back to the Astros. Those are the only deals signed by non-Padres teams that were larger than what the Padres just gave Jerks and Profars. And it's probably, it is the fifth largest move the Padres alone have made this offseason. You bring in Blake Snell, you bring in Yu Darvish, you bring in Joe Musgrove. They gave Hassan Kim another year and more money than they did Jerks and Profar. And what they have done, what San Diego has done here, and this is not that they have built, that they have shoved all the chips in. They're sitting there with a pair of kings and they've gone all in and they're now looking to see what happens on the flop for 2021. This is a team that has built this. This is sustainable for a multi-year process. But the thing that stands out to me, and we'll get into how they've done this with, while holding on to their best prospects, but when you look at the totality of what they've done, Kyle, the thing that just jumps out to me is their redundancy they have now. Like Jerks and Profar can play. I'm not, not great, but he could, can't play shortstop really anymore. You really don't want him to do that. But by the way, he's never going to need to do that with, with the Padres. But he can play a little bit of around the, you know, the field. Hassan Kim can play around the field. Jake Cronenworth can play around the field. There is, this is a team that is now constructed that, I mean, the worst case scenario that I can think of would be you lose Fernando Tatis Jr. for the season. He's their best player. He's their best young player. He's this kind of cornerstone guy. And you say, well, how would they deal with that? And you're like, oh, actually, they have multiple options that they could use to deal with that. And by the way, they'd still have a very deep lineup. You know, it, this is a team that, they're not built around one, two, or three players. Now they're built around, this is, they are assembling what I can only describe as Dodgers-like depth, it seems like. And that's one of the biggest differences to me with this buildup compared to what they did prior to the 2015 season. I was a Padres beat writer that season. I had a front row view to everything that was happening. And one of the biggest flaws in that buildup process was they did not build up depth. They brought in all these big name guys, Justin Upton, Matt Kemp, signed James Shields, et cetera but they were relying on Brandon Morrow to be their fifth starter. And you didn't have to be a seance to know he wasn't going to stay healthy. That wasn't going to work. And they had traded away all their other starting pitching depth and all their other moves. Lo and behold, the back of the rotation became a mess. The bullpen, they had a group of four guys who were pretty good, but once you started getting into guys, five, six, seven, eight, it got real ugly real fast. And despite all the moves they made, they were still rolling out Alexi Amarista as their everyday shortstop. 
they didn't really have a backup catcher. Uh, they was supposed to be Tim Fedorovich. It didn't work. They had to bring up Hedges before he was ready. This was a team that just did not have a lot of depth, and that was exposed very, very early on. And I think A.J. Preller and the Padres, they really did learn from that experience. And I think it's been interesting to watch them take what they learned from that and say, okay, it's not just about – Yes, we have these stars, but we also have to have someone behind them because injuries do happen. Guys do underperform. And that to me is just the biggest difference. They've built up this well of depth really everywhere, starting rotation, in terms of their bench, the bullpen, we'll see what they do. There's still one or two additions they probably could make to help them out a little bit. But this is just such a deeper team than really any other I can remember in recent history for the Padres, certainly, and definitely of the Preller era. And some of that too is... You know, you can build this depth, and we talked about this team having that. They also have star power. And it's funny, in preparation for this podcast, I went back and listened to what you and I talked about last year. You were much higher on the Padres than I was. And the biggest reason for that for me was I didn't see a team that finished in last place with 70 wins becoming a playoff team solely because, oh, hey, they acquired Jake Cronenworth and Trent Grisham. What was going to have to happen was Will Myers, Manny Machado, Eric Hosmer, we're going to have to start playing up to their contracts. And that's exactly what happened. So now you have those guys performing. You have all the guys they brought in through trades. You have this depth. And all of a sudden, the Padres look like a juggernaut. And, and it's a credit to the players themselves. Again, those three guys are really stepping up. You look at the front office, the scouting department. They've made some good moves, both in terms of bringing in some under-the-radar guys and some star guys. Ownerships opened up the wallet. It's been really interesting and enjoyable to watch. This is a team that, look, has not been relevant on the national baseball scene for years and years and years. And now, as Mike Clevenger said on the day he was acquired, you know, San Diego is the place to be. It's, it's pretty amazing to watch just for those of us who, again, I grew up in San Diego. My first beat job was covering this team for the Riverside Press Enterprise. And just seeing the 180, it's, it's a little surreal. Like, wow, this is where the Padres are. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing in a way. The other thing that I'll say, I'll give credit to A.J. Preller and the front office here. One of A.J. Preller, in 2015, it was a weakness for him. A.J. Preller is bold. That's kind of always been kind of a part of the A.J. Preller experience is, is that he's not one, you know, in, in 20, they, they made massive moves at that time and they didn't work out. And then they almost immediately backed up from those moves and they said, okay, now we're rebuilding. And then they went out and they had a, basically when you count the penalties, a $70 million international you know, year that they spent. They, they made big moves. The thing that stands out to me, you said there's only five teams who signed a bigger contract than the one that Jerickson Profar signed. While it feels like, and again, I know this is an unusual offseason, coming off of COVID, you have a whole lot of teams who are trying to retrench, which gives the Padres a massive opportunity because we're in a year where trying makes you already like and by trying i mean saying we're not going to treat it like we have to basically gut our team as far as payroll i'm looking at you national league central you know uh you know i not doing that puts you in a very good place right away but on top of that being willing to be bold not basically holding back and saying oh let's see if the market comes to us has allowed them, you know, the Blake Snell move is not a move that a whole lot of, I mean, they, they gave up Luis Patino. There are teams out there 
who they can be as bold as they want to be, but if they don't have a Patino type piece, and I don't want to make it sound like there aren't teams that could do that, but if you don't have a Patino type piece to anchor that deal, you couldn't make that trade. Okay. You know, and again, there was other guys in it too. Mejia, you know, there were guys in that. The U Darvish trade is a trade that any team in baseball who's willing to spend basically has the prospect capital of some sort to do that. Now we have another one. I, I do have to think that there are front offices out there who are looking at this Joe Musgrove trade. And I don't want to make it sound like that Joe Musgrove is, you know, but Joe Musgrove is, again, he's, he's their fourth starter in this move, but Joe Musgrove's a solid major league starter. And they were, they were just, <laughs> they are more decisive right now than most teams out there. And I do think that that is an advantage in a year where a whole lot of teams seem to be saying, we're hoping that if we can drag this out to February, the market will come to us. And so far, the deals we're seeing don't seem to indicate that the market's coming to teams as much as it seems like some of the better players are leaving the market. And if you just wait, you're not really improving your team so far. Look, the Padres are being aggressive. They sense an opening. San Diego is a city that is longing for a competitive team. I've talked about this ad nauseum. The Chargers leaving was a pretty deep wound, and the Padres have an opportunity to seize the city, the corporate sponsorships, the disposable income. I mean, people talk about San Diego, and they call it a small market. It's not a small market. It's a mid-market when you look at population size, and you look at some of the zip codes within 20, 30 minutes of Petco Park. There's plenty of money. There's a lot of financial power that can come in to the Padres' coffers, but for many, many years, they didn't act like it. And now under the ownership group, uh, Peter Seidler has been the lead investor. Ron Fowler was the chairman. Now Seidler's running the show. They understand that. They know that. They know there's an opportunity here. And it's a smart business move as well as a smart baseball move. They have an opportunity to really capture the city and the substantial disposable income available in the city. So this is a good time to be a Padres fan. It's a good time to be a Padres player. There's a lot to like right now, and I applaud them for their aggressiveness. And every team situation is different. It doesn't make sense for some teams right now to go be as aggressive as this. But we've talked about teams retrenching. Look, there are certainly times you want to go and start a rebuild. But you look at the Cubs, you look at the Indians. These weren't teams that were winning 80-some-odd games. These were teams that were in the postseason. The Cubs were the NL Central champions. The Indians were one game out of first place last year and won 93 games the year before when Kluber got hurt, Lindor missed time, Ramirez missed time. These are competitive teams that are saying, okay, we're going to take a step back. The Rays are defending AL champions and they traded away Blake Snell. So you're starting to see it's not just teams that are stuck in the murky middle trading guys away. It's teams at the top are trading guys away, are willingly taking steps back and for the Padres, yeah, this is a great opening. The National League right now, I mean, the Braves, they've added some pitchers, but their lineup needs some additions, the outfield in particular. The Dodgers are a powerhouse, but they do need to bring Justin Turner back. They have a hole to fill third base. I mean, the Padres are sensing an opportunity, and they're taking it, and that should be applauded. Actually trying to win Major League Baseball games is kind of the new market inefficiency, which is crazy. The other thing that stands out with this is they have traded – a roster full of prospects over the last nine months or basically. I mean, go, you go back from the Clevenger trade to now, you know, the deadline of last year to now, they've traded a, a couple of bushels of prospects. I mean, it is like, it's not one guy, it's not two guys, it's not 10. It's, it's a massive amount. That said, what is overwhelmingly 
apparent from this. And what stands out is if you look at the top 100 prospects list that we just dropped at the start of this week, they haven't given up their core. They've traded kind of the, again, in most cases, and this is not to denigrate the Hudson Heads and the Gabriel Ariases and the guys like that that they've traded, but they haven't traded their core prospects. They've traded the prospects around the periphery, I feel like, in this. And if you said, how's this farm system? Well, it's thin now because if you trade 20-plus prospects, it'll be thin. But I look at this, Kyle, and I say, but I'd rather have stars than depth. And this system still has stars among the prospects. Absolutely. Keep the top, trade the depth is generally a good philosophy. And again, this is another lesson they learned from the 2015 buildup when they traded away guys from the very top of their system and it came back to bite them. Um, they really did a good job keeping, as we talked about, they have seven top 100 prospects. Hudson Head's a very good player. I actually thought the Pirates did okay in that deal. Hudson Head's a very good player. You look at some of the players they've traded away, good players. Again, Reggie Preciado is a good player. We talked about Luis Patino. But I mean, to assemble the talent they have in trades and to have kept six of their top seven prospects going into the offseason, Luis Patino being the only guy they traded away from that group, that's impressive. Again, Blake Hunt's good. Cole Wilcox is good. These players are good, but you absolutely take the guys they got for them. Um, the total now, after the Darvish trade, the Padres had traded 18 prospects from the trade deadline to the Darvish trade. Now you have the Musgrove trade. That's 22 prospects they've traded in addition to a lot of other guys who are recent prospect graduates, Cal Quantrill, Josh Josh Naylor, Naylor. Francisco Mejia, Ty France. So 22 prospects and add in a handful of other young big leaguers. Yeah, if you added non-arbitration eligible young players in the majors, you literally have talked about they have traded a roster. They have traded a full roster of prospects And that said, you look at the system right now, the guys that you most want to hold on to are still there. I mean, when we talk about when I, you know, again, the nightmare scenario where Fernando Tatis Jr. went down, that this is a team that has an incredible shortstop prospect right now. One of the best prospects in the game in CJ Abrams. This is a team that now is going into the season with Mike Clevenger out for the year with Tommy John surgery with you know, not knowing what they're going to get yet from Denilson Lament, with all that, this is a team that goes into the year, if Lament is healthy, Mackenzie Gore, Adrian Morhone, you know, Ryan Weathers, all those guys, if they're pitching and everyone else is healthy, if they're in the rotation, they're all battling for the fifth starter job, right? I mean, this is, this is a team who <laughs> they're not going to have to ask for C.J. Abrams or Mackenzie Gore or Ryan Weathers or Luis Camposano. They're not asking any of these guys. When Fernando Tatis Jr. showed up, it was like the the soon-to-be face of the franchise has shown up, and they needed him to hit the ground and be a core player for them from the first moment he arrived. C.J. Abrams is not – again, he's a little bit – when you Abrams is still a year, he has yet to play full season ball, basically. But so through COVID and all that. But CJ Abrams is in the same class of prospect as a Fernando Tatis Jr. was at this point when Tatis was in low A, you know, that kind of that kind of rate. He's one of the best prospects in the game. 
with that said, they're not going to need C.J. Abrams to come up and be a cornerstone guy when he arrives. They just need him to be a contributor. Mackenzie Gore is not being told, hey, if you're ready this year, we're going to need you for 30 starts. They're not going to ask any of these guys. These guys are going to be, if they move in, they're going to be moving in in kind of those ancillary roles because this is a team that already has stars, and this is a team that was already one of the best in the National League without these guys, right? Yeah, no, 100%. Again, they've done a nice job putting their young guys in a position where, hey, they can just go develop at their own pace. They're not going to need to be rushed. They have players to fill whatever role that these guys would normally fill. They have middle infield depth. They have starting pitching depth. They have catching depth. They have all the things they need at the major league level to compete. And if those young guys force their way up, great, awesome. You can let them come up on their own timeline. You don't have to force it. And that's always a good thing. Speaking of C.J. Abrams, C.J. Abrams, Mackenzie Gore, how tough was it determining who was going to be number one out of two very prime prospects right there? Yeah, so what I would say is it wasn't overly tough in the sense that I thought it was Gore going in, speaking to evaluators, doing the reporting, doing the work. It was still pretty clear that, yeah, it's Mackenzie Gore. When he's right, this is a potential top of the rotation left-hander with four pitches plus control. It's all there. And he's done it. He's gone up. He had a great season at Lake Elsinore. He got up to double A. He's just, he's just shown that, yes, these raw ingredients play over a full season against professional competition. I will say there was more support for Abrams in the spot than I maybe thought there would be initially. In the sense, I think going into it, my thought was Gore won, you know, Abrams, Patino would be an interesting discussion at two. Because Patino was still in the system at the time we were getting the handbook written and, and doing the reporting. And over the course of speaking with player development officials, scouting officials, everyone who was at the alternate site, and then in instructional league evaluators who saw C.J. Abrams play, it became clear that not only was C.J. Abrams the clear number two, even ahead of Luis Patino, that there was some consideration that maybe he should be number one. You could find people within the Padres organization who will tell you, it's 1A and 1B. I did have one individual say they would take Abrams over Gore. Again, it's not a majority view. That one compared to nine or 10 that said, give me Gore. But the point is the opinion does exist. Uh, there was another I spoke to. I said, hey, who you got, Gore or Abrams? And it was a deep breath and a long pause and about 10 seconds of silence thinking about it before saying Gore. So there's no question C.J. Abrams has put himself with his performance, what he did at the alternate site, showing well against pitchers who had double A and triple A time. I mean, even in summer camp, he was facing guys like Lamette and Paddock. He was working good at bats against them, lacing balls into the gaps. Uh, He's playing a tremendous shortstop defensively. Then he goes out into instructional league. And not only was he the best player in Padres camp, he was one of the best players in Arizona, period. There's no question. This is a very, very special young player. We saw that in his debut when he hit 400 in the Arizona league. (laughs) He's rising. So there was discussion. I don't want to sit here and tell you it was super duper close, but I think it was closer than a lot of other people might have initially thought. With that, okay, so what do you think is kind of, it's hard to know this right now because we're coming off of a year unlike any other, but what kind of time frame do you think is a, is a realistic one at this point for Abrams? Partly when we acknowledge that this is the team that as we just laid out, has Manny Machado signed long-term at third, has Fernando Tatis Jr. as short, has Hayson Kim, and Jake Cronenworth, who can play second. Jerks and Profar can play it too, but he's more of an outfielder now. 
I mean, it's not like they're going to have exactly a whole lot of openings come open anytime soon, but what is a realistic time frame for CJ Abrams in San Diego? The Padres have told me that they are considering jumping him straight to double A to start the 2021 season, assuming we have a normal minor league season. Theoretically, if he's in double A, he's within striking distance of the majors. But again, there's no reason to force it. You have good players there ahead of him. I think realistically, maybe it's more 2022. But again, even if that's the case, he'll be 21 the entire 2022 season. So what I'll say is he'll go as fast as he dictates he should go. If you start a year in double A, you're always within striking distance. It's not insane to suggest, oh, hey, if a couple injuries happen and who knows what, and all of a sudden, hey, he's gotten up to El Paso and we have an opening, why not? He's put himself in position to move quickly. That's not the only interesting infielder that you had to figure out how to slot in. Later in the process, you had to figure out how you were going to work in uh, Sung Kim signs a four-year deal coming out of South Korea. And I mean, obviously this is a player, you know, we've consistently going back to Hideo Nomo, Baseball America has always said, if you're rookie eligible, you know, coming over, we're going to rank you whether you're 21, 25, or 38. Um, but with Sung Kim, obviously you had done a lot of work on this before you ever knew that he was going to become a Padre because you spent a lot of time last, you know, last uh, spring when there was, when the KBO was one of the few games, not just in town, but in the world, you know, diving into the KBO. But what kind of was the thought process of where to slot the slot, Kim? Yeah. So my initial instinct, just having done the work on Kim throughout the spring and catching up on him again into the fall before the Padres signed him, I wrote an updated scouting report on him for the prospect handbook knowing the Padres system, having done the reporting and the work and seen a lot of these guys. My initial instinct was actually to slot him in at seven behind Robert Hassel. Speaking directly with Padres officials, as well as officials with other teams, it was actually a pretty convincing case to move him up a little higher. And I want to put the caveat in there that the four to seven group, Morhone, Weathers, Hassel, Kim, it's very, very, very tight. You'll see that in our top 100. If you told me you wanted to order those guys any other way, I wouldn't sit here and tell you you are wrong. There are arguments to make to order them in all sorts of various ways. Ultimately, just in speaking with Padres officials, running by what they were telling me with high-ranking officials on other teams, how they viewed it, it began to be a little bit of a consensus that he should be either right behind or right ahead of Adrian Morahone, just a major league ready, versatile, athletic infielder who can provide value in a number of different ways, defensively on the bases and the bat. There's always questions about, okay, how much is a guy like this going to hit? Velocity-wise, he hasn't faced a whole lot over 90 miles an hour consistently, but And this was what I was told in May when I first made calls on this. When I followed up in the summer to see how he was doing, it was the same thing. When I followed up again in the fall, it was consistent. This guy has the swing. He has the twitch. He has the athleticism that we think he will be able to do it. And even AJ Preller talked about in his press conference after the signing that they've seen him improve and adjust every single year. One thing about Hassan Kim is this isn't a guy that MLB scouts just kind of started watching in May because the KBO was the only game in town. I've talked to guys who said, hey, I've wanted this guy since he broke into the KBO at 19. Teams have been following this guy for years and years and years and years. So 
ultimately just given the proximity, given the ability to contribute a number of ways, it became fairly, I don't want to say consensus, but it was, there was a very strong bent that, yeah, he needed to be more up with a guy like Morahone, who's also super young in the majors, has a lot of promise. There are things to work on, but that was the more direct comparison as opposed to a guy like Robert Hassel, who very, very promising, but you're talking about a teenager yet to play a professional game. And we've seen that go 10 million different ways. There's a sense that Kim, there's more certainty there and there is upside as well. This Mm -hmm. isn't a floor ceiling debate. There's legitimate, really good everyday major leaguer potential here. So Kyle, I got, I want to ask you something else, but before we do that, we have a quick break and now we're back. Okay. That's the ceiling. What do you think the floor is? Again, there are players who come over from Asia, you know, and especially the KBO, the KBO is a, it's gotten better, but it is still the, the second tier. I mean, guys go from the KBO that when when they go to the MPB to Japan, it is considered in many cases a jump to go to the MPB. So there's a little bit more risk there than it is when you have that like eight year, you know, MPB star coming over. But is the floor here useful utility infielder because there is some defensive versatility as well. And I mean, is that like his hitting ability is such that there's not really a risk that he's not going to be a, a semi-productive player. What do you think kind of is that like, I get it. Not the worst case scenario because the worst case scenario for anyone is they're out of baseball, but what is a realistic, like if this guy fails to meet kind of not even lofty expectations, but ends up being less than what we think he is, is he still a productive player? So I, and some of this is a philosophical thing. You know this, I hate the whole stealing mm-hmm. floor debate because I think floors are artificially inflated higher than they actually are. Look, if he comes over and he can't hit major league velocity consistently, he's not a major leaguer. We can talk about defensive value all we want. We can talk about speed, but okay, well, if you have defensive speed and you can't hit, well, the Potters have that guy. His name is Jorge Mateo and he's even faster and he has some outfield experience. So, and this was part of the discussion. If you look back at, Korean hitters who have come out of the KBO, not the guys who signed as amateurs, Shin Soo mm-hmm. Chu, G-Man Choi, those guys signed at 18. Mm-hmm. They came up through a development system with an MLB club. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of success. The one real success is Jung Ho Kong with the Pirates. And he did it and he came over and he was great before running into some off the field issues. And his numbers in the KBO, now he was older, so it's not an apples to apples comparison, but his numbers in the KBO dwarfed Ha Song Kim's. Again, different players, mm-hmm. but... That's really the only example recently, especially of a KBO guy coming over and having success. Young Ho Park, Hunsu Kim, it didn't quite work out. And those guys got some big league time, but it was very brief and ended up going back to Korea. So that is a possibility. I don't want to sit here and tell you, oh, he's no matter what going to stay in the majors. There's absolutely a quote unquote floor here of can't hit major league velocity and the adjustment's too difficult. And he ends up going back to Korea because we've seen that happen. But again, in speaking to evaluators in the Pacific Rim, international directors, very, very, very few people think that's going to happen. I mean, the reality of it is, is there are Hall of Fame caliber players who, you know, like they have risk at this point, like, you know, because players do things happen. I mean, you know, so yes, there's no certainties in this, you know, in baseball, but okay. So we talked about that they've, Basically, the Padres have traded away a roster full of young players and nearly a roster full of prospects. There is a cliff here, uh, 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 you know, in this top 10. Like, how do you, you know, where does that start? And 
looking at it, we have to, we're going to be posting a, an updated Padres uh, full top 30 online before long. And uh, there's going to be a lot of changes in that compared to what we had in the prospect handbook and compared to what we had last year, you know, and all that. But how tough is it like to figure out who slots in at the back of this top 10 and where does that kind of, where's that demarcation line where you say, okay, I feel really good that this guy ranks here, but after that, there may be a little bit more. It's a little tougher to say who lines up after that. Seven. I mean, Robert Hassel at seven is where you say, okay, we like all these guys. These are all first division, at least above average potential guys who very realistically, as realistic as you can get when talking about young prospects, especially have chances to be very, very, very good major leaguers, whether that's all-stars, whether that's above average for a long time. I mean, all these guys have a chance to be really, really good. As soon as you get to new number eight, Tuka Peter Marcano, if you really, really, really like Tuka Peter Marcano, he is maybe kind of what Jerks and Profar was for the Potters last year. So again, a good, versatile player who did a lot of good things. I thought in a lot of ways Jerks and Profar was kind of the unsung hero of last year's Padres team. Some things he did on the bases, filling in left field when Tommy Pham got hurt. There were a lot of game situations too where you could not have a strikeout. You had to get the ball in play. And his back control, his ability to do that, I mean, it was huge. There were a lot of games where, hey, it's a one-run game, runner on third. You have to get him in, one out, a strikeout. You cannot have it. He got that run in. And a lot of times that changes the dynamic of the game. So it's a complimentary player, but one who's important to your team. That's kind of the ceiling on Tuka Peter Marcano. More common assessment is he might be more the 25th, 26th guy on the roster who plays a little bit of everywhere, makes some contact, not enough strength really to impact the ball. I think the former is decently likely, and that's why we have him top 10 prospect in a system that still has some guys. But there's no question when you're talking about the absolute best case scenario, even in his biggest supporter's eyes, is a bottom of the order, do everything, winning player, utility type. There's a pretty big divide there. That's, that is a pretty big divide. Um, okay, so where does this, uh, you know, the, to kind of wrap this up, where does this go for here for the farm system? I, I kind of see it as, as something where the Padres clearly are using their farm system largely now as the way to build up the big league club, which makes a whole lot of sense considering that they are a team that is absolutely positively a World Series contender in 2021. I think it's fair to say that they should be a World Series contender with the roster as it's currently constructed in 22. I don't think it's crazy at all to think that they should be a World Series contender in 23. Does this team, is, is this it for the farm system or is there still, you know, the talent here to both make an impact, but also if they needed to make a big move come the deadline, do they have the ammunition to make it? They do, but you'd have to include one of these top seven. You're not going to be able to package numbers 9, 13, 17, and 21 prospects and go get a standout. We saw the Clevenger trade a little bit. I mean, Gabe Arias was their number nine prospect. He was the best prospect they traded there. Again, the young big leaders were a valuable part of that too, but you're not going to be able to do that anymore. I mean, if you're talking about an impact player, whether it's that front of the rotation type arm, whether that's an impactful bat, whether that's a, even a high-end closer, Again, some of this is going to depend on teams' finances and whether or not teams are taking themselves out of contention as we've seen them do this offseason. 
there is some talent here still. Again, it's just, okay, you talk about utility guys, likely relievers, guys coming off Tommy John. I mean, Reggie Lawson has promise, but he also has a career ERA above five and is coming off Tommy John surgery. Guys like Joshua Mears and Justin Lang, two really, really interesting young players, but Lang hasn't had a professional inning yet and Mears hasn't played above the AZL. So you're High upside guys, so to speak, are so far away that it's tough. And then your guys were further up. It is a lot of those complementary pieces. And for the most part, to get a star, you got to give up something a little bit more. Although it's weird in this environment. So maybe they can swing something. Who knows? They have a competitive major league team, as you mentioned, for the next two, three years at the minimum. You still have this star-studded top of the system where these guys will continue to come up and potentially reinforce and extend that window. And look, if Tucapita Marcano comes up and is that nice utility guy and Michelle Baez is able to get things together and becomes a really nice seventh inning guy and Darius Valdez becomes a great bullpen piece and two or three of these other guys lower in the system take a jump, whether that's a Jagger Haynes or a Brian Medina, then all of a sudden you're still in good shape. So I would say that the depth of the system has absolutely dropped off in a big way. But when you look at the total picture of the organization, I'm big on this. Don't just look at a farm system as an independent entity. Don't just look at a big league team as an independent entity. Look at the whole picture. The whole picture is really, really good. When you look at the major league team, you look at the top of the system. And again, they'll have three more drafts and three more international classes to help build the system back up. And maybe in three years, they've, done that. This is a group on the amateur side that scouts really well. Mark Connors' group has done a great job. Chris Kemp's group on the international side has a really good track record. So maybe by the time they need to backfill this farm system, well, they have three years to build it up and it might be ready for them in those three years. Uh, that's the, I think that's the perfect kind of thing to end on here, which is what you just said. You look at the totality of it. If I'm looking at the totality of a major league team where they are, contract contracts, you know, like life cycle as far as, you know, young talent versus old talent, and then throw in the farm system. I struggle to come up with, I mean, I, I, I may still rather have the Dodgers. I think I'm done after that. Like, again, if you said, because again, I'm going to wait major league talent more than minor league talent when you talk about this. If you talk about the totality of a team, because major league talent is much more proven than the, you know, the strongest farm system. I love some farm systems out there, but when you talk about a team that, I mean, the Padres at this moment have a farm system that at the top rivals anyone, the top end. Now their depth, you compare their depth, to the Rays, not even a question at this point. And the Rays are the team, the other team I would talk about there, but the Rays are not as good right now as they were when they went to the world series last year. They don't have Blake Snell anymore. You know, you look at the Rays and we're talking about Joe Musgrove, being their number four starter for a, uh, for a Padres team, potentially Joe Musgrove would not be the number four starter for the race. You know, the, when we talk about that, they're going to have Mike Clevenger back. He'd be yeah. their number two. <laughs> so, you know, you look at this, you look at the totality of it. I, there are, you talk, I, I, I like the Braves a lot. I think the Braves still have some young impact talent in the minors. They also have depth. Their depth drops off like the Padres does. But the reality of it is, is that I think that the Padres have a deeper big league club right now. So, you know, you put it all together and it's like, <laughs> this is a team. It's the first time 
in your lifetime, Kyle, I think we could say this. And it's, you know, I think the first in mind that we could say it either, because I don't think it's never been true of the Padres going back and I'm including the uh, Alan Wiggins, Gary Templeton era, you know, the early eighties and all, which I do remember well, I'm old, but you know, in looking at all of it, this is the best the Padres should be in team history. Like as far as like the first half of the 2020s, should be the golden age of San Diego Padres baseball. Now, they have to go out. They have to win the games. That's important. But all that said, this is a team that right now is constructed to battle with what can only be described as the behemoth of baseball right now. They're, they're in the division with a team that basically is not good, but great year in, year out. And... I'd say that they have a chance to compete with them. And that is something that is absolutely should not just be acknowledged, but I mean, tip of the cap for that, because that's really hard to do. Yeah, no, I, again, it's one of those interesting conversations. I don't think right now you can sit here and say, Oh, the Padres have left the Dodgers. The Dodgers have an insane big league team. They have a really deep farm system. They have some star power at the top of the system potentially. And again, I'm big on, going out and showing out in the field. And the Dodgers are the team that's represented the National League in three of the last four World Series. So I think until the Padres go out and beat them, it's hard for me to say, oh, they're the favorite. But as you mentioned, this is the closest they've been just in terms of this era of the Dodgers. There's no question. This is the first time I think you look at the Padres, their lineup, their rotation, you line up against the Dodgers and you say, ooh, this is going to be fun as opposed to, okay, well, maybe if we're lucky, we'll win seven or eight of the 18 as we play them every year. So yeah, this is definitely the most competitive I think the Padres have been. I was alive in 1998. I was nine, 10 years old when they were in the World Series and right there among the NL's best. So I remember that. But the other years they made the playoffs, I mean, 05, 06. I remember going to those games against the Cardinals. You looked at their lineup against the Cardinals and it was like, this doesn't feel like a fair fight. They were in the playoffs, but they were not in that elite tier. This is, yeah, this is the first time the Padres have been in kind of the elite tier of franchises in the National League since that 1998 team. And in terms of prior to that, I mean, this franchise has the worst record of any franchise since they came into existence in 1969. And now here they are. And look, you still have to go out and win the games on the field. We talk about it every year. The team that wins the offseason is rarely the team that actually wins during the season. But you look at the talent base and also the management. I really want to give credit to Jace Tingler and his staff here. I wrote about in the feature story. I've talked about it. One of the things that plagued the Potters for so many years is they just played bad baseball, bad defense, bad base running, terrible at bats. That was the most remarkable thing to me last year, just watching the quality of the at bats. And the defense had some bad moments. We saw it in the playoffs, but on the whole, over the course of the season, they did a lot of the little things that make a big difference. So you have this level of talent, you have a coaching staff that exhorts them to focus on the fundamentals and do the little things that make a big difference. They're in a really good place. And now we just have to go see how it all works out. But there's a lot of reason for optimism. And I, I cannot remember another time Padres fans have been this justifiably excited. There have been times they've been excited, but they've been a little bit delusional about how good the team and the players actually are. I think this is the first time in my memory they've been this excited and it's grounded in reality. Padres fans, you're not dreaming. It really is happening. 
This is this team. You are not making this up. You're not going to wake up tomorrow. This is actually the lineup that you have. That's kind of a perfect way to end it here on another Baseball America podcast. For Kyle Glazer, I'm J.J. Cooper. So long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.